This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, why do we fidget? Cognitive neuroscience expert Professor James Dankert at the University of Waterloo tells us why our brain is always looking for something to do. He helps us understand if fidgeting is related to boredom and how we can be more stimulated. We could use a big dose of clean energy right about now. That's cool, but how hard is it to make it happen? Greg Fish tells us why researchers are hoping to give the world nearly limitless source of clean energy with a helping hand of artificial intelligence and some hot plasma. Like the sun, a tiny little sun in your neighborhood that would power everything. Plus, are you okay with weddings and so much more here on The Shift? This is The Shift Podcast. Ryan O'Donnell's here. Brennan Kelly is here as well. It is time for Are You Okay With Stuff. Love stuff. Oh, isn't it? No, that wasn't it. Oh, okay. No, okay. I have lots of Uh, stuff. I mean, are you okay with stuff? I yeah, like trying to have less less stuff. That's a thing. Yeah, that's about it. Are you okay with koalas? Koalas. Oh, so cute. Uh, Aside from the fact that so many of them have chlamydia and are stinky, that's not related. They're just. There's like a huge chlamydia outbreak among koalas in Australia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're adorable. And uh, it's weird. Yeah. It's a weird animal, but they're cool. Hope they're okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when I was down under, um, they are very lethargic. They just, They've got like such a terrible diet. They eat just like eucalyptus. It doesn't give them enough energy really to <laughs> to <laughs> do anything. All they want. Um, so like I think I remember them saying like the majority, 90% of the year, they're just super lethargic. And then there's that 10% of the year you want to stay away from them because that's mating season and they're actually vicious uh, during that Randy. period. Yeah. Huh. Randy little buggers. Randy. Well, they're not they're not bears, even though they look like bears, and they would be really cute. Like that'd be kind of cool to have one around the house, right? Like, hey, Kyle the koala, uh, come hang out with Brendan and Ryan while we watch the Lego Movie. It would and listen be, to eighties records. Yeah, it would be like a contest between me and the koala as to who's more lethargic and just low energy. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. I don't know about that. Koalas are very cute. So very cute. So it makes sense that the first international travelers to arrive in Australia in two years were gifted with the koalas. Yeah, you see, um, travelers are allowed back in Australia now. All of a sudden, it's like two years, nope, couldn't go. And so when you arrive in Australia, you are given a koala, a stuffy one, mind you, not a real one. That'd be weird. But a hmm. stuffy one. And hmm. what else? Vegemite. Yep. Australians welcome the world in the most Australian way possible with koala stuffies and Vegemite. Here's more from Reuters. For most of the last two years, the international arrivals at Sydney Airport felt like a ghost town. It didn't today. It was one reunion after another. This couple hadn't seen each other since before the pandemic began. They're now going to be married in three days. It's surreal. I don't know. I'm losing my mind right now. How does it feel to see you again? So good. So good. It's been so, it's been way too long. This was Qantas's first international landing. 
Australia's national carrier has 154 flights this week. A year ago this week, it had zero. The country's reopening is making for some very happy grandparents and grandchildren. So excited because I haven't seen them for two years. And what are you going to do? What are you most looking forward to now you're in Australia? To spend time with them. Australia's COVID lockdown was one of the tightest of any democracy. Australians started calling themselves Fortress Australia. The borders were closed for 704 days. The first day he could, Canadian Peter Bayliss went back. Uh, my parents live here, so I haven't been able to visit uh, for just, since just before COVID. So I'm coming back for a family visit. Now, tourism experts say in the coming months, numbers will still be a fraction of what they were pre-pandemic, 30 to 50 percent. But reopening is a step in the right direction. And on this day, it meant some pretty big smiles, <laughs> albeit still behind masks. Mike Armstrong, Global News. As Mike Armstrong from Global News, uh, not Reuters. Um, Home Affairs Minister Karen Andrews said all of the travelers' vaccination status should be checked before they arrive to avoid a repeat of the Serbian tennis star Novak Djokovic's visa debacle. They kicked him out. Prime Minister Scott Morrison said 1.2 million people had visas to enter Australia with 56 international flights due to touchdown in the first 24 hours of the border reopening. You get the feeling like there's going to be a mad surge of international travel now that mandates are really dropping everywhere i have a i have a crazy strong desire to go to europe right now like i've wanted to go for years but i don't know like i'm thinking about selling almost all of my shoes to try to go to europe this summer really yeah something i don't know is it's kind of just like all right here's my window I'm going to try to make it work. Well, isn't that funny that you think of it that way? Because I think that's mm-hmm. the way people think about it is they're going to like the, the FOMO is kicking in, right? Yeah. If I don't go now, I might not be able to go. Huh? Oh, cool. And then everyone's going to Australia. Uh, Clem, uh, no, Trucker Dan says I would name, um, his koala stuffy chlamydia or Clem for short. I would uh, raise the bar on that, Trucker Dan, and say, why not Clammy? Clammy the koala. Here, Clammy. What? That's pretty good. That's pretty good. It's, it's pretty good. Are you okay with... Here's your... Are you okay with... <laughs> what happened there? <laughs> I'm okay with those. Oh, I'm on the wrong section. Here we go. I'm okay with the all-night headlines. Yeah. Right. yeah. Let's do that. Right. Take two. Which is second Are time you friends. okay with... There it is. <laughs> That's his one mistake for like 2022. He's still left over from his credit bank of no mistakes of 2021. Fairball. Well, I, I had a few. I just I, I do them in such a way that you don't notice. Ah, thank you. Love is in the air. Love is in the air. Are you okay with weddings? I love weddings. Went to two last year. Or no, two over the last two years when I hadn't gone to any in like six years and it's just everybody's in a good mood lots of alcohol lots of good food dancing and yeah you know it's a big life decision but you don't worry about that you just have fun it's a great time 
Going to the wedding or the, the or being involved in the wedding? G- going to the wedding. I emceed mm. both and I just got drunk, made fun of my friends and and had fun. It was delightful. Yeah. yeah. I hope to well, be you... in the serious part of the wedding sometime soon. But, oh, that's uh, nice. Oh, the, oh, you heard yeah. it here first, ladies and oh, gentlemen. Oh, God. Uh-oh. <laughs> there um, you go. You can give me some tips. I have to emcee a wedding this coming summer. Well, with love in the air and everyone with a fear of missing their wedding, racing to get married this summer, that's for sure. Every wedding needs an iconic moment. The bride walks down the aisle. The groom looks. He cries. And everybody's wondering if he's crying because she's so beautiful or because he's worried that he's screwed this up. But you can't do that before the ring bearer brings down the hardware. Sometimes you grab the good old boy, the doggo, takes the ring down. This couple picked a different kind of animal to be the ring bearer. They picked a um they picked a turtle. Aww. Vets Erica and Jay Johnson first met while doing a wild tortoise survey twenty years ago. Apparently, they move it fast in their relationship as the turtle does. So, of course, they let their pet turtle, Tom Shellick, <laughs> be the ring bearer. <laughs> That's the best name ever. Oh, I love this couple. The 41-year-old said that strawberries were dotted a lot down the aisle for always hungry Tom Shellick to follow before the pair tied the knot last year in Arizona. They were worried Tom would bite some toes, but he was a good boy. Um, we catered the wedding march to fit Tom's pace. And in the spirit of awesome weddings, how's this? Chelsea found the strength to walk down the aisle, surprising group Jay Bloomfield. Oh, boy. In November last year, here's a separate clip. Is it the first one or the second one? I, I don't know. This is the order they're right. Oh, the second one here. catered the wedding. There one and there it says clip. Show clip-o. <laughs> Just do the second <laughs> one. Just do the second <laughs> one. <laughs> we had a clip Oh, Yeah, you had a clip Jay, clip-o. when you saw her, can you go back to that for me? I don't know. I just got this weird flood of emotions. Even when she walked up to me and her dad passed me off, I, I think I said something like, you you blow me away every single day. Uh, absolutely stunning. Look at you. <laughs> The emotional moment, a milestone for Chelsea, who was paralyzed from the waist down following a car crash in 2010. When did you think I'm going to walk down the aisle? I promised myself, and so about two years, I started really figuring out how I could do this. And I found these leg braces that completely make my knees locked out because I can't move them or anything. And so I started training with them and I was like, okay, this is really, I can do this. That's cool. That's from NBC News. Uh, what a surprise that would be. Also on the story of this, the original clipo we have for you, which was supposed to be the wedding march, slowed down to represent the turtle space delivering the ring in the original wedding we were talking about. And it sounds like this. That's funny. Well done, right? <laughs> Might take a I while, can't believe it's adorable. It took them 20 years to get married. Turtle seems appropriate. <sighs> Are you okay with? Got it that can time. Just, can we? Thank you. Yeah. So far, so good on Are You Okay? Very good. Can, can, can we just write down clippo? Like, we need. That's a clippo. 
<laughs> I prefer that. I enjoy that one too, which is funny because just for some insight, there was a zero typed after the word clip. So it literally was a clipo. Clipo. I, um, Poetic. while my sound effect software has crashed, it tells me that it needs to be reinstalled. So I reinstalled it and then it still tells me it needs to be reinstalled, oh, no. which leads me to believe my Mac needs to be restarted. Anyway, so I have no typos or no sound effects for typos today. So you're off the hook. Sweet. Are you okay with the bedhead? Oh, yeah, I get pretty wicked bedhead now. It's the longest my hair has ever been in my life, and it it is not really? pleasant to look I at. No, short. I look like... What's sorry? I find it was always worse when my hair is shorter. Yeah, but it's easy to fix, right? Like, it's just, you know, get some water, throw it in, it's fine fix. But the long I hair, like, I'm at that weird, really? awkward stage in the growth. I look like... Leonardo DiCaprio in the 90s if I just stepped out of a wind turbine just the hair part I do not have the face of Leonardo DiCaprio I know my I know I know <laughs> hmm. um <laughs> thank you though uh you ever stand in line behind somebody like at the bank or whatever and then you you're like you clearly just got out of bed and did not brush your hair this morning because their hair is like parted in the back and looks like it's been in against a pillow all day well that's fun well, that's the best thing about being me <laughs> I can just yeah, when I get up in the morning, or I guess the early evening now. But when I get up, it I just put on some pants and walk out the door. I don't have to. When I, I was younger, I used to have hair product that was actually called Bedhead because I would pay money to replicate having Bedhead after I showered. So there you go. There's a there's a young person moment of waste to spend money for you, right? So. The bedhead ridiculous hairdo is a thing that we've all experienced at some time in our lives. You can fix it with a shower and a comb and all those things. I might imagine waking up with hair that rivals Albert Einstein every day. And you can't comb it. You Ooh, can't gel it. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you're stalling it's i'm a trying to find script. my way i'm trying to figure out how we were waking up with a whore according mm. to ryan's typo mm. excuse me that was hair um you can't comb it you can't gel it and it'll always have a mind of its own that is the life for a three-year-old in georgia with the wild hair lock samples that is his, his name, name is Lock Samples. His name is Lock Samples. Yes. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> All right, uh, not a typo. Just weird. Lock Samples has a one in a million condition that gives him a hairstyle that all metalheads across the world wish they had. I got nervous because I had never heard of it before. So Caitlin Googled it and then called Locke's pediatrician. And they were like, we know Locke and we know his hair. We can't really help you here, so we're going to send you directly to a specialist. That's how the samples ended up at Emory University Hospital in Atlanta. We went into the dermatologist's office. Um, several other doctors came in and they took pictures of his hair. They took samples of his hair. After studying Locke's hair under a special microscope, doctors confirmed he has one of about a hundred known cases worldwide of uncombable hair syndrome. The hair strand is like a triangular shape and twisted every single 
single individual strand is that way. The samples learned that the syndrome doesn't affect Locke's health. And kids with it usually have fine, light-colored, dandelion-like hair. And everywhere Locke goes, smiles and comments. Most of them nice, but not always. We were at Waffle House on Thanksgiving, and an older woman looked at him and said, oh my gosh, that baby wakes up every day with a bad hair today. But kids are like, that baby has the coolest hair. Kids are into it. That's cool. There are some kids in this world that they have the cutest, most perfect, amazing hair ever. I love that. That's from Fox 5. There's a chance that lock samples will outgrow uncombable hair syndrome once he reaches puberty. That's really what it's called? That's really what it's called. It is so rare. It it looks like, you know, when you put your hand on... uh, the I don't know what it's called the little Tesla like dome at the science center and all the electricity like kind of goes to your fingertips and then the hair mm-hmm. starts to stick up his hair permanently looks like that it looks like it's permanently frizzed by electricity no matter how wet it gets or whatever it's kind of cool I'm not gonna lie I'm kind of jealous hmm. yeah wicked all right yeah I like that yeah hey right. man some people pull it off um some people mm-hmm. do absolutely um and, you know, much like uh, the text that comes in from Dan, it says, my hairstyle is by Gillette. Just like, uh, mm. just like BK's. Yeah. Another text comes in and says, Ryan, don't be silly. You're much better looking than Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, oh come on. <laughs> Thank you, bud. Just take come it, man. On. I'll take it. I'll take it. Are you okay with phone books? Yeah. Mm. No, I mean, why, why? I don't, I don't need them anymore. You, yeah, you grew up, never grew up in the era of phone books. They're yeah, handy to put things on. around. Yeah, they're handy to sit on if you're short. Yeah. Um, they were great fire starter. Mm-hmm. I mean, think of all the businesses that are named A One Something or A A A Towing or AAA tire repair just so you could be at the beginning of the list of the yellow pages. Yeah. I feel like it's probably harder for kids to prank call at sleepovers now because they can't just open up the phone book and dial a random number in town. Not random that I'm numbers. condoning that anyone should ever do that, but like you can't. It used to be do that. so cool that um it used to be so cool that you could, you know, look in the phone book and then find your teacher's home phone number. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be fun. Substitute teachers too. Is a thing. Um, the phone book may be a thing of the past, but they still have their uses. For example, you could stack things on top of them, or maybe ran, Ryan ran out of ideas that you could use with a phone no book. Idea. That was it. It was one. Yeah. That was it. But a town in Ohio has found a brand new use for this antique item to fill potholes. An Austintown police sergeant noticed a serious pothole was causing problems for drivers, and he jumped into action to help. Sergeant Rick John was called out because cars were getting damaged by this pothole on Old Town Road, just south of North Turner Road. Now, until crews could arrive to patch it, he stuck a few thick telephone books he found on the side of the road inside. John says eight cars had pulled off to the side of the road with tire damage. We don't get eight or ten in one pothole within a 15-minute period. I'm assuming people are coming down the street and they're all on their way to work, and the pothole was deep. I mean, I end up finding it. I was able to put a phone book in it and put a cone in it just to alleviate a little bit of it for the time and help people change some tires. Wow. Who knew? 
Very creative thinking, though. Let's give full credit to that one. Um, that little clip is from WFMJ. The pothole was patched later that day. Yay! Way to go, Ray. What do you say? Nice. Hey. This is the Shift Podcast. Do you fidget? <laughs> I I fidget. James, what do you fidget with? Uh, I don't fidget with stuff. I um, I tap. I I won't do it to ruin your sound recording, but uh, I just drum my fingers on the desktop or on my knees do you, hey? and uh, do it fairly really? constantly. It, it gets, can get uh, so loud and distracting. My uh, The guy that's in the office next door to me sometimes comes in and says, hey, can really? you stop your drumming? Really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Bob, you have a musical background anyway, so that does kind of make sense. Yeah, you know your uh, I, I, your music. My kids so. had the fidget spinners when they were a fad. I think that fads died out, but uh, that I, I never and, and I I had those um, you know those Chinese massage balls, the sort of chrome balls mm-hmm. with a little bell in them. You can roll. I had mm. those for a little while, but actually having a thing in my hand is not doesn't uh, suit me. I prefer just the tapping. Wonderful. I mean, for me, I uh, do my Rubik's cube <laughs> quite often. I find that it actually allows me to focus. So when I'm sitting here having a conversation with you, I'll often play with it uh, quietly in the background. And um, and I've been busted on the radio where the audience members say, I can hear your Rubik's Cube. But it allows me to not doodle, to not do things, right? It's sort of a lesser of the evils uh, scenario. So I thought because of uh, your background, we could we could chat about this a little bit and sort of learn. Uh, if you don't remember James, he's been on the show before. James Dankert, professor, cognitive neuroscience research area head, University of Waterloo. Uh, brain and how your brain stays busy, I guess. So what is what is fidgeting? Are we bored? Is it p- pent up energy? Are we uh, trying to multitask? Are we trying to avoid work? Where does this go? Lots of different places, and I haven't done any research on fidgeting um, per se, and so it's you know it's only sort of uh, adjacent to some of the stuff I'm interested in. But um, I, I think the thing that you hit on there that makes most sense to me is about how much pent up energy you might have. So you just talked about it. You you're talking to me, and you you play with your Rubik's cube, and it helps you focus. Um, so so that might be useful in a lot of different ways. But you might also find yourself at the opposite end of the spectrum, where you're in a situation that you can't escape from. And you're a little bit bored. And you're disengaged, and so you need to spend that energy. So ultimately what that says to me about humans is that humans want to be sort of using their resources, their brain resources, their their thoughts. They, they want to use them at some sort of optimal Goldilocks level. And if you're underutilizing, you might sort of start to fidget or doodle and that kind of stuff. But you can also have that kind of thing. I'd, so I certainly do where if I'm excited about a thing that I'm working on, sometimes I need to have a break and engage in fidgeting or you know finger tapping and that kind of stuff because mm-hmm. the energy is sort of going too fast for the thoughts or the thing that I'm trying to do, right? So I need to sort of let the energy out another way, like fidgeting, um, mm-hmm. and then get back on track. So I do think it's – and the challenge then is what do we mean by energy? What do we mean by resources, right? So it's all a bit of smoke and mirrors and hand-waving because we're saying – or I'm saying you need to use your resources at an optimal level, but – the big question then is what resources, what kind of brain resources are we talking about? Um, and that we don't have a very good answer to just yet. Well, it does raise a couple of questions for me. Uh, is it possible, because in, in the neuroscience end of this, that when we start to fidget, maybe it's pent up energy, whatever, cause and effect, it becomes a normal part of our routine 
sort of in thinking and focus, whatever. So whether we have the, this is where I get curious, is that whether we have the pent up energy or not, is it possible that through the course of time that we just start to fidget because this is now our comfort zone of thinking or processing or, or whatever? Yeah, now you're talking about habit. Right. And and I think Yeah, habit, exactly. Yeah, I think that's perfectly possible that, that people get into the habit of doing these kinds of things and they've associated them probably not consciously. You know, you're probably just thinking about this in the back of your mind and not really intentionally trying to make these associations. But eventually, yeah, you get into the habit that when you're thinking about something or concentrating on something or when you're bored, you you uh you, you do this kind of and, and maybe I you've just made me think that maybe we should be talking about different kinds of fidgeting right because what you're talking about is fidgeting when i'm focused on something and when i'm concentrated concentrating and i'm coming back to this notion of being bored when you're bored and you fidget it's because you're uncomfortable because the thing that you're doing is not engaging right and that's a little different than you know being energized and focusing and and fidgeting because of that right right what about control though could we put control in that too because if i'm out of control in my situation i know i can control my rubik's cube or my fidget spinner yeah, so I think in situations where people might find themselves experiencing some anxiety, there might be automisms, you know, like things that you do with your hands or things that you do, you know, commonly that allow you to um, to try and relieve that anxiety. I think a little bit about smokers. My older brother was a smoker for the longest time, and uh, when he whenever he tried to quit, you'd see him with a packet of uh, um, toothpicks. And it was just mm-hmm. like, so he'd have the toothpick in his fingers and he would pick at his teeth. He didn't need to pick in his teeth. He just had it to do something with his hands to try and avoid the cravings for the cigarettes. So that kind of thing I think is probably feasible. Yeah. And then you have, uh, with smokers is a great example, uh, social time, right? There, I mean, there you get your smoke break and now you're going outside and you're you're connecting or reconnecting with other people so the question for me always becomes well what are you really craving i mean it's obviously you know biologically your your body's going give me nicotine but really are you recre- are you craving getting away from work or having social connection or getting out of the office or you know go get a breath of fresh air which is the most ironic of the <laughs> of the clichés uh, but it really it could be just that it could be a breath of fresh air that you're actually going out for it just so happens that you smoke while you're there yeah, and there are all those kinds of uh, um, sort of peripheral things uh, around it. I mean, maybe they're not so peripheral as you're suggesting that they're, they're maybe a bit more central that make it hard when they're trying to quit, right? Because all of the good things that you got, the social connection, the little bit of break from the work, um, they also trigger the thought of I really, I could really go a cigarette right now. But um, yeah, yeah. So I, it, there could be a sort of a chicken and egg kind of thing there that that might be yeah, hard to solve. So interesting. Yeah. Maybe cigarettes. Maybe we just solved it, James. Maybe <laughs> cigarettes were the original fidget spinners. <laughs> maybe that's what it was. It is, it's, it's hard to imagine why people keep going with the I, I can't imagine anyone having a, an enjoying experience with their first cigarette. But, uh, I know I didn't, but there you go. Yeah. Um, so, well, I know that some people say they like the taste. Um, and that's, I guess that's, if you imagine your first taste of, you know, whiskey, <laughs> you probably went, Ugh. Yeah. but now you, you get into it as an adult and you're like, oh, that tastes so good. Yeah. I can taste the vanilla or the oak or something yeah. crazy. It's crazy. Um, so I had this for my daughter. I had this conversation with my daughter about fidgeting and, and, and sort of drama in general. And I asked her, I said, if you and I lived in a cave, like this is hundreds or thousands of years ago, we lived in a cave. What do you think we'd be most worried about today? And she said, well, probably food, probably sleep, 
and probably being warm. And I said, yeah, that's probably bang on. What are we worried about today? And she was like, you know, what Steve said. And I was like, (laughs) yeah, so it's possible that in our lives today that we haven't really caught up with some of the routines or we're not using our natural uh, woven skills the way that we we should or that we could and we our brains and our bodies our soul and i was it was a conversation sort of about your soul versus your brain so your brain your your soul is like this this is out of the neuroscience realm of you but i know that uh that you know you'll do like to nerd out about this stuff your soul is this sort of expression of yourself right like you're like big fat jazz hands out in the world here i am uh but your brain is like don't fall down right so your brain just naturally creates these these inhibiting you know, hurdles to keep you alive today. Um, So how, like, this is where I sort of look at, for me, the fidgeting part of that nervous energy thing that you talked about, that we really don't understand how our brain is processing this logical world of everything around us. It's getting stimulated with bright lights and cool sounds and smells and all these things, but at its fundamental core, it's going don't fall down and die. Um, and that, that leaves us in a strange place. Yeah, I, I mean, I think your daughter's answers were interesting. You, you might sort of turn it around on its head and say, um, well, hunter-gatherers never fidgeting. Do they never fidget? Because you know, they spend right. entire day sort of looking for berries and nuts and, and avoiding predators and finding the next place that they're going to bed down for the night or whatever. Um, interesting. But it also sort of raises for me that, again, this notion of a Goldilocks zone, that um, ultimately we want to be sort of engaged with the world around us. We don't want it to be – and that Goldilocks zone is not some sort of single set point. It's a, it's a range of things and it differs from person to person. Um, and if you think about that, you think about something like what we call homeostasis in a biological or physiological kind of sense. And the easiest example is body temperature, right? So if you get cold below to a certain sort of body temperature – the, the uh, um, heat goes from your extremities and protects your core. You get, you know, um, uh, shivering and, and all that kind of stuff. And you, you, uh, it, that's, that's your body's way of trying to deal with your core temperatures drop down too much. You get too hot, you start sweating. Um, and, and that's, again, your body's try, way to try and stay in this zone. Well, I think that we want to be in that zone for our thoughts as well. It's not just that this is a biological need that we have to make sure that the organism survives and doesn't die, Interesting. but that we have a homeostatic range for our thoughts. And, and, and by that, I mean, I don't just mean sort of thoughts that you have in your head just for yourself. I mean, the way you interact with the world, how do you engage with the world? And so you can satisfy that need in lots of different ways with your work, with playing a musical instrument, with social interactions and that kind of stuff. But if you're not quite fully satisfying it, then maybe you engage in things like fidgeting. Um, you know, and it's, it, that's a, a hypothesis. So I don't have any data for you, but uh, I, I think it's an interesting idea. So uh, with the, this notion that if our thoughts put us in discomfort, then that sort of goes back to the possibility. And I realize it's not a data thing, mm. so let's at least call it the possibility. Uh, that would at least be accurate um, possibility that we're constantly coping in some fashion when we're out of that that comfort zone, that Goldilocks zone that you talk about. Am I following you? Yeah, I think so. And and um, coping sort of suggests that when you're outside of those zones, that it's that it's um, negative. And I think that's probably right. Like if you go back to the temperature example, 
I mean, you know, sometimes it's okay to get in the gym and get hot and, and sweat, but you can, everyone can think of those times of, you know, being uncomfortably hot and you just can't, you know, get yourself cooled down. And of course, at the other end of the stream, there's, it's, it's very easy to think about those times where you're uncomfortably cold. So in terms of thoughts, when you're not engaged enough, when not enough is happening for you and you're understimulated, that's uncomfortable and typically makes people feel restless, you know, because you want to get mm. something going. And then if there's too much, you sort of talked about how the, our brains have evolved over you know, tens of thousands of years. You're talking about dealing with this current environment that we're in where there's bells and whistles and lights and social media and you know, a million different things to try and pay attention to. That can be like you know, imbibing all of that information can be like trying to drink from a fire hose and it could be just too much, right? So at that end of the extreme where you can't corral your thoughts and you can't focus them, that's uncomfortable too in a psycho, uh, psychological sort of illness model, that's mania, right? That's sort of right. Um, that inability to, to, to stop your thoughts from racing from one thing to the next. So, yeah, I, I do think that when we're outside of our zone and our zones, each person's zone is going to be different and, and tuned to different things. But when we're outside of them, it's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Well, and so much stimulation too. I had this one piece that I wrote, James, um, so long ago that it said um, – that I was either going to end up in a straitjacket or change the world. Mm. And I wasn't sure which would come first. <laughs> and But it does feel like that threshold, that fine line of the, the mania of the thoughts and the ideas and, and maybe interpretations, uh, maybe a little bit of um, empathy to the world and being able to either corral it for good or have it like a tsunami of info you know, roll me over in the surf and, and sweep me away. I mean, it really does feel like a knife's edge of a fine line at times. I think it, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it can feel like a, a, a knife's edge. Um, but I, I would sort of emphasize too that the, the kind of Goldilocks zone that I'm talking about could also be quite broad for people and, and, and mm. very situation dependent, right? It's like, so when I say that, you know, we, we want to be engaged, um, you know, that, that could be sitting down on the couch and watching the latest Netflix thing that you like, which, you know, you're passively taking in the entertainment in some sense, right? You don't, mm-hmm. so to be engaged doesn't have to be equated with changing the world. It's great right. if it does, but, you know, it doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. So. Well, and that's so grand. It's fun that you say that because I'll use examples from my life just to sort of create some connection for people. So they, um, so everyone who understands that maybe there's the same, maybe there's is wildly different. But stimulation for me, the change the world stimulation, you know, obviously here on the shift, we like to have these kinds of insightful conversations for people can go, oh, you know what? I, uh, I do like to fidget. I do this and it makes me feel better. And that's great. That's all it needs to be. That's it. It works for you. And it's not it's making your life a little bit better. That's fantastic. At the same time, I can watch just some dreadful smut on Netflix <laughs> and turn my brain off yep. um, or. I can watch, I've been recently watching documentaries on Ireland because of an interest to go to Ireland. And so I'm, I'm inspiring myself to find, okay, well, what really interests me? Do I need to go to ruins or do I want to go to castles that are functioning today as estates and businesses? Do I want to end up in a pub? Do I want to hike a mountain or do I want to go to a distillery and, and have some Irish whiskey? You know, so that to me is also changing my world. Yep. Um, and and keeping at least the bubble of here and now brought back into what is globally mind versus um, necessarily the world as everyone's existence. Is that a fair look at it? Because I want to create a, I really would like to create this this fidgeting thing that it's, if it's not making your life worse, 
and that coping is okay no matter what it looks like is really to let the cat out of the bag here. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I would 100% agree with you. That I, I don't um, I don't have any kind of moral judgment over people who fidget, you know, yeah. given that I do it well, on Well, so myself. many people feel like, yeah, right. So many people, sorry, I didn't mean to step on your thought. That so many people feel like, A, they have to not fidget and fix the problem so they never feel the need to fidget again, which is fine if that works for you. But you also have to realize there's no end to that. The cliche is top to the mountain anyway. There's no top to the mountain. Something new, new influence is going to change. You might start to fidget again and find your way. So I guess that's what I'm I'm kind of going for there is the find your way part. Yeah, and I guess I I would also suggest that there's a lot of uh, contextual parts to this too, right? Perhaps if you're going for a a really important job interview, you don't want to be trying to drum your fingers on the the table or on your knees in front of you. You you want to try and control how you're portraying to people. But, um, you know, in, in most of the situations that we can find ourselves in, most of the fidgeting that people do is probably fine, right? Um, and, you know, if you mentioned briefly doodling as well. I mean, most of us have done that at some point in the time. You're on a, your audience, I don't know what the, the average age is, but, you know, I'm old enough to remember that we used to have these things called telephones that were hardwired into the wall of our house. And, oh, and that so, was my mom. And so you'd be on the telephone and you'd have a piece of paper and a pen and you'd be doodling, you know, because... Yep. Because you could. Um, I sometimes in in scientific talks that I see, I've got my notepad that I'm trying to take notes on, but I'll also do some doodles because I don't think that there, there's nothing wrong with that in my view because all it's doing is like you know, okay, I'm not fully engaged in this, and I'll just and maybe the the, the doodles can actually be helpful in in clarifying your thoughts anyway. So. Yeah, I don't see anything wrong with it. It's all situation dependent, contextually dependent, and and uh, pretty normal. There's probably a psychology study on what you doodle and oh, your yeah. line stroke and pressure on the page and all those <laughs> things about whether or not you agree or disagree with the topic at hand. I can tell you this, for how many stars, because my doodle is a star, mm. I don't know why, but for how many stars I've driven in my life, I'm still terrible at drawing them. <laughs> <laughs> they, if I told you those were stars, you might even go, really? That looks more like an X. Like, it's terrible. I've got five of them sitting right here. Um Oh, that's so interesting. Is there anything that still, I mean, like this boredom thing, um, you know, boredom is so broad. We've chatted about it before. Um, Let's, can we reset that just briefly and talk about how, you know, there is that fine line that I learned from you between boredom of being not interested or just not stimulated as being, you know, distinctly different in some ways that you can just be interested, but have it not light you up, if you will. And, and still pay attention. And th- th- we often put this morality on boredom as a bad thing, and I don't think it's a bad thing. We, we do. There's a, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, you know, my mother or my father told me when I was a kid that only boring people get bored, you know. Um, and yeah. I, I don't believe that. I think we all get bored, but some people deal with it really, really effectively and well. And I don't think it's a bad thing, um, but we can have responses to it that aren't great. There's a study I think I might have talked to you about from Timothy Wilson's group in 2014, where they put people in a room with nothing but their thoughts. So they took their cell phones away. There was nothing in the room to look at, nothing to read, nothing to do. They sat them in the room for 15 minutes, and then they asked them to rate the experience at the end of it. You know, how'd you find that 15 minutes of doing nothing? And uh, yeah, about a third of the people said, oh, it was, it was pretty good. I quite enjoyed it. You know, it was a bit of downtime for them in some sense that they didn't get in their lives. Another third of the people said, oh, no, a bit ambivalent, didn't matter. And then the final third said it was horrible, boring, terrible, never want to do it ever again. Wow. And then they, they, their last experiment is they put people in a room for 15 minutes with nothing to do, except they had one option. They could self-administer an electric shock. 
Now, before the 15 minutes started, they'd all felt the shock, so they knew what it felt like. They'd all said that they would pay money of varying amounts not to experience the shock again. And yet, a vast number of them, I can't tell you what percentage now because I can't remember, but a, a large number of them chose to administer shocks even while, even though they, they knew it didn't feel good. One guy shocked himself 196 times. Wow. And so we, we sort of partially replicated that experiment in the study that we did where we did it slightly differently. We had people in a room with nothing but their thoughts and then we had another group of people in a room and we told them, you've got to sit here and do nothing but think your own thoughts. But in the room were certain things that they could do if they wanted to. But we told them, you can look, but you can't touch. So you're not allowed to you know, work on this half-finished Lego puzzle. And you're not allowed to wow. work on this half-finished jigsaw puzzle, whatever else. The people in the room where there was stuff that they could do were more bored than the people who were in the room with nothing to do. Oh, wow. But here's the thing that I think is relevant to your fidgeting thing. So we put a little spy camera in the room with the people we, we told them afterwards but we didn't tell them before it was in the shape of a uh, a coffee mug which has given the details away a bit um and so we did that because we wanted to see if people broke the rules because we you know did you sit there with your thoughts or did you get up and do stuff or particularly in the room with the things that they could have done did you get up and play with those things but here's the thing even in the room where there was nothing in the room people broke the rules they stood up and they did stuff there's some people like, would get up and they'd trace their finger along the walls like they were sort of pacing a prison cell. There's a couple of people got up and did exercises, like they did squats or, or, or burpees, right? So mm. in that room, and, and, and that was sort of, you know, for the purposes of our study, you'd end up sort of excluding the people who broke the rules um, and, and, you know, not use their data. But in some sense, those were the people who um, might adhere to this only boring people get bored because – they weren't just going to let themselves sit there in this stupid experiment. They were going to get up and do stuff, right? right? And so it's not a bad response to being bored. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 think, uh, I think we do sort of have a moral judgment about boredom and we might, I, I, you know, we might get annoyed by people who fidget and that kind of stuff. But I, I think they're both pretty normal, um, just normal responses to the need that we have to be engaged I'm Shane Hewitt. It's The Shift. We are talking about uh, fidgeting and boredom and all kinds of uh, cool things. This is so fascinating. Our guest right now is James Dankirk. He's Professor Cognitive Neuroscience Research Area Head at University of Waterloo. Uh, James, you had said in that last little segment there about in some of the research how people, even though they're supposed to sit and be with their thoughts, they'll get up and fidget. And the, the thing that got me, because you talked about sh- electric shock, people choosing to get electric shock, uh, people choosing to do workouts and people running their finger along the wall. I like that. I like to feel things. Mm. And so I've never, ever realized that until you said that. And so I like to, I just like to touch my finger on things and feel things. Having a dog, I like to just touch the dog's nose and stuff like that. So it is stimulation of some sort. And the question that I wanted to ask was, we often say, well, I'm not happy, right? I'm not sad. So I'm, I'm, I'm I'm not unhappy, but I'm not sad, right? Like so we often have this distinction that in order to be happy, you can't be sad. In order to be sad, you can't be happy. And yet, not being happy doesn't necessarily mean being sad. So this incredibly sort of linear approach to these thoughts, and that what you made me think of when you talked about the shock was, uh, you got, made me think of stimulation and boredom as being distinctly opposite. But is a lack of stimulation and boredom the same thing, or is a lack of boredom and stimulation the same thing? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. 
I, a lack of stimulation and boredom is, are not the same thing because you can think about certain, certain circumstances that you choose to have low levels of stimulation and you're not bored. We just call that relaxation, right? right. So I think that's a good thing. Um, but the, the key um, factor there is not the level of stimulation, but the choice that you exert. So I'm choosing, I'm just going to go and veg out in front of Netflix, or I'm choosing, I'm going to go to the beach and, and sunbathe or whatever, whatever you do that you, you, you want to relax. Um, you made the choice. And so the lack of stimulation is something that you actually are looking forward to for whatever reason. Um, wow. But if you want something to be stimulated by and you can't get it, that lack of stimulation then becomes boredom and becomes frustrating. Um, but you can also, we've shown, you, you can also get bored um, at sort of high levels of, of information, if you like, or stimulation. We had people play uh, the, the children's game, Rock, Paper, Scissors, against the computer. And in, artificially, we had one group win all the time. And they rated that as super boring because, you know, they're playing 100 trials of Rock, Paper, Scissors and they just never lose. And they don't even realize why. They didn't, they didn't even figure out that we'd rigged it. But the group that was also <laughs> the group that was also interesting was the group where we made a hundred percent of the time we made them lose, right? So mm -hmm. in the early stages of that, they get frustrated with the the fact that they're losing the whole time, but then very quickly they get bored, and so they're trying to find information. They're trying to figure out how to beat the co computer opponent, and it's just not working. And so that is sort of there's enough stimulation there. There's a, enough information, and in fact, there's the same information as there was for the guys that won all the time. And yet they still feel bored. So I think the opposite of boredom is a lack of engagement. The, the opposite of boredom is engagement and boredom is a lack of engagement. That's how I'd say it. I wouldn't say it's about stimulation. Yeah. Well, so what it came to mind for me um, is that I've, what I always write about the language part, I mean, you've got the psychology background. Mm -hmm. I don't, but the, um, when I write about the experience of this language in our lives, it, the word, the key word and most important word that I always share is participation mm. because you are always participating. Participating and a lack of participating mm. is still participating, right? Yep. And so at what point, that's where, at what I wrote down, what you just inspired me to write down was that the question is not about are you stimulated or not, it's at which level that you're stimulated. Because even if you're snuggly warm in your bed, you're still stimulated by snuggly warm and participation is very similar like that. You're always participating or choosing to stay away to not participate, which has an impact in the sort of the butterfly effect of all things. So, um, so boredom is distinctly different um, than stimulation just from that notion alone. I do think I'd come back to you. You like the, the physical touch and the, the people in our experiment, the touch and, and, you know, patting your dog. I mean, I like that kind of stuff too, that you, because I think there is a role to be had for some level of external stimulation. And one of the things that, that makes me think about is a study in the 1950s from uh, Donald Hebb and, and, uh, and this guy Heron. They did essentially sensory deprivation stuff. So it wasn't quite the sensory deprivation tanks that, you know, from, you know, altered experiences or whatever that movie was. I can't remember its name now. Um, <laughs> altered States was called. Um, but they had people in a room where it was completely white light. Their eye, they, they had an eye patch on. They had a, 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 an air conditioner going that was just constant sort of white noise. They had their hands in these specially designed gloves so that they couldn't move their fingers and this kind of stuff. And basically it was like, stay in here as long as you can, right? And you can have bathroom breaks if, and meal breaks and this kind of stuff. Some people stayed in for days. But wow. what they found is that boredom was the very first thing that people sort of said because, you know, there's just, they were just doing nothing. But then like the other sort of um, sensory deprivation experiments, weird things start to happen to your brain when you don't get sensory inputs, 
So mm-hmm. people started hallucinating. People, you know, uh, one of the things that they said in that study is that at the end of it, people reported higher belief in the supernatural, and so yeah, wow. all this kind of stuff. So wow. your brain is. Uh, I, I think there's two things at play here that I think are important. Your brain is um, meant to engage with the world. So. That's an outward, I am going to, when you're talking about participation, I am going to go out and participate in the world. But in order for it to do that effectively, it needs to receive incoming information. It needs to, see, needs to receive feedback to know that its, it's chosen engagement is going well, right? You've right. got a goal. You want to you make a change in the world. You want to affect some sort of action. Well, how do you know if it's working if you don't get the sensory feedback? So we need both. We need to be outwardly directing our goals and actions so that we engage with the world and we need to be getting that input coming back telling us how how well we're doing. That's so cool because what you just brought to me was this, what I said earlier in the conversation was, you know, there's sort of the soul as your expression of yourself and then your brain is logically functioning in the world and yet what both have in common would be that word participate, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. And so um, that's a new creation that you just had for me. Okay, question then for the truckers part is that um, in a cab or delivery driver, a taxi driver, security guard, truck driver, um, they're driving along. I get why they listened, why the how important and privileged I am to have this show while everyone's listening, driving, because that's sort of that moment of stimulation slash boredom slash crossroads. I would say that this audience right now is living into that crossroads of all of it probably as much as anybody else in the world if not more yeah i mean i have never never done those sorts of jobs. The, the most driving i've done with a group of friends we we drove from uh, you know where where i am in uh, i was at london ontario at the time we drove out west to go, go to the mountains but um you know you get into that zone on the trans canada highway where where there's nothing but straight lines and prairies either side of you and and it's very hard to focus and concentrate and you're really better mm-hmm. because it's pretty dangerous right um so yeah i i, I think that you, you want to try and find ways to keep yourself engaged and keep yourself you know focused and that kind of thing and so I, i've told you already at the start of this that i tap my fingers a lot when i'm at work and i'm not typing i'm tapping i tap my fingers on the steering wheel all the time when i drive too it's interesting just a thing to to keep my fingers active and keep myself focused a little bit so yeah i uh, however the truckers do it and delivery guys do it uh, all power to them to keep themselves sort of focused and i I would suggest here that most fidgeting that i can think of in a situation like that is is probably advantageous rather than disadvantageous right like you don't want people looking at their phones and and right. texting and that kind of stuff. But a little yeah. bit of fidgeting with your fingers is, I think, probably a good thing for keeping people alert. Well, it does raise the question, what kind of fidgeting do you do? Uh, which we will ask here on the shift, 877-399-9898. Uh, thank you for this deeply insightful conversation. I love it when we are able to get together, James, because um, it always leaves me inspired. And um, and you do that for me, and I'm very confident you do that for the rest of the shift heads who are listening Uh, as well. Thank you so much for being here, man. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. This is the Shift Podcast. It's time for the World of Weird Things, man. Welcome Welcome to the World of Weird Things with Greg Fish. Fish! How's it going? Uh, 
Good. Let's start this conversation by acknowledging the fact that your family is from Ukraine, and um, I hope everything's okay and people aren't too uh, worried for your extended family that is still around those parts. Well, uh, actually, I don't really have uh, any family there anymore. They all left? For a variety of reasons. Variety of reasons? Well, um it must bother you to watch what's unfolding. I mean, as a guy whose family did get out, I mean, you've told us stories of what life was like there. Um, I it mean, must be tough to see. I mean, I could I could tell you what I feel about it, but uh, I'm pretty sure this broadcast would get fined into oblivion if I actually let loose with, with my full opinion. So I, I'm going <laughs> to go ahead and, and, and skip that for now. That's fair enough. Appreciate that. Do you are watching it real close? Was it on your mind often? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, that's got to be tough. Um, we've had some amazing guests on helping us understand um, what goes on politically there, what's going on for Canadians uh, Ukraine uh, in Ukraine and vice versa, um, Ukrainians in Canada and so on and so forth. So it's been an amazing story as we continue to, continue to watch. Uh, that's for sure. That is not why we're here today, though. We are here, worldofweirdthings.com, to talk about the blog post that is nuclear and AI with nuclear. Now, why does this scare me, Fish? When you talk about artificial intelligence working with nuclear, that to me sounds an awful lot like the Terminator. Well, that's because that's the only context in which most people are exposed to the idea. This is This is kind of more, this is less Terminator and more kind of like a friendly assistant robot, like kind of like Jarvis from Iron Man. That's kind of what, what we're going in, which direction we're going here. We're mm-hmm. not, we're less, less Terminator, more Jarvis. Okay. So then help us understand for those who are just joining us here on the shift, you can see the article at world of What are you proposing is good or is it bad when AI works the notion of nuclear to our green environment benefit. So very important thing to point out here is that what we're talking about is we're talking about studies of nuclear fusion, not fission, not bombarding big, heavy atoms until they break apart and all the energy that's that's holding them together comes out as heat and light that we convert into electricity. We're talking about nuclear fusion where we heat up atoms so much they combine into new and bigger and heavier atoms in the process put out a lot more energy that we can capture and turn it into electricity that's what we're talking about uh that kind of nuclear reaction is much greener simply because Mm -hmm. we don't use big heavy elements uh we're not there's also different plans for how to use different mixes of atoms in order to reduce potential amounts of radioactivity even further but the problem with that is that Fusion happens all the time in the universe. In in the core of the sun, stuff fuses constantly. Hydrogen is fused into helium, and that's what lights up stars, and that's what gives us sunlight, and that's what allows us to live or or exist in in the form that we do today. Um, The slight problem is the sun kind of cheats because it is very, very, very heavy. So if we wanted Earth to be able to create fusion by its gravity alone, it would need to be 30,000 times heavier. So since that's not happening, and then we don't want it to happen because if the Earth turns into a star, we will all be vaporized immediately, which would be very bad. I feel like I should point that out just in case. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not on the fence about the whole being vaporized equals being bad thing. Uh, mm. But 
but if but since we can't use gravity we need to use pressure and the only way we can do that is by creating plasma and then using magnets to condense those coils of plasma so tightly and make it move so quickly that atoms basically have no choice but to be slammed into each other at absolutely ridiculous speeds create bigger heavier components and put out energy the problem is that we can get that ignition part we can get the plasma flowing around the reactor the problem is you can't keep it flowing long enough to get a net output so that's where the ai comes in the idea is that because it is so difficult to arrange these magnets and adjust these magnets the right way to keep those those fusion plasma coils working why not let computers handle it they can watch in real time and calculate how do we position all of these magnets for the right reaction for the right duration to prolong the burn because what's going to happen is when uh, the plasma when when the magnets get overheated or they're in the wrong position that coil of plasma that's creating the fusion is going to start losing its density. When it starts doing that, the fusion stops, the reaction stops, and it just kind of all goes away, and we're left with less energy that we put into the system. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about creating energy on this scale of usability in our lives, like little things in our lives, do you remember the days when they put fuel tanks in the wrong spots on pickup trucks, and then they got into a collision of an intersection, and it was an inferno? Are we talking about that? No, we're not, because that's not how fusion works. So what's going to okay. happen is, so what even if usually you like happens, smash into another car with one of these things, like even if like there's an accident, nope, it's physically impossible. Because here's what happens: um, in normal fusion, or sorry, in normal fission, uh, you have very heavy atoms, so you have to confine all of that activity. If you breach that confinement, all of that radiation spills out. That's very bad because the reaction keeps going and going and going and going. If you have fusion, when you breach the confinement, the reaction stops because plasma is... So, you know, like in sci-fi, they always have like plasma weapons. Yeah, like a, in, oh, like a phaser gun or something. Yeah, yeah. So in reality, those would never work because plasma doesn't have the right density. So it would just be nothing. You wouldn't even feel a warm puff of air. It would just immediately dissipate. So that's exactly what we're talking about. So you breach a containment chamber of a fusion reactor. So I, I have to preface this here that that from a from a very technical standpoint, you would get irradiated with a bunch of neutrons, depending on the exact formula for the exact isotopes that are being used for the uh for the fusion feedstock mm -hmm. but you won't create a meltdown that would not be possible simply because plasma would just diffuse itself and the reaction would immediately stop okay so do you want the good news or the bad news let's start with bad news it's kind of you know the all right the, uh better to get this the good out of the news way. is the good news that was, that was really cool uh, I, the bad news is that did not break it down in a way that there was too many big words. <laughs> I don't know what you just said. <laughs> okay. So let's start. So let's start from the beginning. Uh, we need, so basically our, our whole problem right now is that we, we really desperately want to have this cleaner energy source, which is fusion. And we know that it works because, well, we built weapons that do it. So we know how to do ignition. We built 
various experiments where we can take um, deuterium and tritium isotopes of isotopes of um, hydrogen, and we right. can and we can smash them together into helium. We've been able to do yeah. that. The problem is we need to keep the reaction going, and that's the part where we're failing because we don't have magnets that are precise enough or good enough or adjust themselves quickly enough to keep that reaction going. Okay. Okay. So it's not, it doesn't sort of, it doesn't snowball enough and have enough oomph to melt a guy from a gun. No. Okay. Well, that makes more sense to me. Okay. So uh, we can use it in what? Like, are we talking flying cars enough power here? Or are we just talking about, you know, enough for a little bit of pew pew for fun in the backyard? Right now, it's the little bit of pew pew in the backyard. But again, the idea is if we have an AI controlling magnets, which is what we're actually now trying to do with a Google-backed project called DeepMind, which actually was really famous for the psychedelic paintings that they create um, on the web. If you're, if you're interested, you can look that up. Uh, but the same company has also been contracted to work with a um, research center that has a little fusion reactor and they've actually taught NAI how to manipulate all of the magnets to produce a longer, cleaner, steadier burn. So the thought is, if you can control that reaction precisely enough, you could do anything from powering, powering like a small neighborhood to powering entire cities. It's just a matter of how long can you run the reaction and how big of a reactor that you built. And there are actually some designs for these like almost spherical looking things that would probably be about the size of like a small house that could run an entire neighborhood for, you know, decades with given very okay. little fuel. Okay. So, uh, Turker Dan says this, um, to simplify, Greg's talking about building a tiny little sun in the laboratory to power stuff. Yes. Okay. Could just said that. Except the sun would be donut shaped instead of like an actual little <laughs> star. How do you, why, why would it be a donut? Because the inside the reactor, it's we kind of send the plasma to go around and round and round, and it forms a donut. Oh, does it have sour cream on it? Because I love the sour cream glazed donuts. Uh, mm, I, I, I don't know how to feel about that information. Okay. Sour cream on donuts. Okay. I. Oh, sour cream glazed donut, that man. That's bridge, the best. That may yeah, be a, we are a bridge way, too far for me. No way. We can no longer be friends. Um, okay, so this is interesting. So what is the what is really the benefit of this? Because everything we hear like that's nuclear has rods, it has waste, it has things that need to be hidden deep underground for a very long time. Well, this doesn't really have any of that. Uh, the idea is we can use a little bit of seawater, basically, and extract certain isotopes from seawater and power ourselves this way. We don't have to go out and mine uranium and potentially turn it into plutonium and then have to deal with all of that crap when it gets way too hot and way too radioactive to handle even inside of a reactor. So there's there's kind of minimal waste involved and a lot of these um and a lot of the waste that would be created kind of become safe in about like 10, 20 years instead of thousands or hundreds. Hmm. 
the other important part is it can't be used to make a weapon. Like you don't, you won't be able to generate the kind of um, the kind of heavy elements that we would actually use in nuclear weapons. So that's already good. Um, and then mm-hmm. finally, uh, it it will because you're not mining a lot of uranium to power it. It's has a much smaller ecological footprint. So basically, it's cleaner. It's safer. There's much, much less waste, and that waste is a lot less dangerous. And then there's even there are even more ideas where instead of using isotopes of hydrogen, you use hydrogen and boron, and and creates a kind of reaction from which you can derive electricity directly. So it's actually a much more efficient way of powering everything. And then the idea is, if we have fusion reactors, we can actually pretty much take them anywhere. And at that point, if you talk to any sort of space scientist, they will tell you, oh, if we have small fusion reactors, we can basically colonize the entire solar system in like 10 years. No problem. Oh, good. Here we go. Back to colonialism. This is good. We are basically working today to try to get rid of colonialism in order to become more clean so we can do colonialism in faraway places. This is life's coming full circle here. That's what's happening. Well, hope well, hopefully with we'll have a lot less murder and conquest because there is not very much living there, you know, out in the solar system. Okay. That we know of. Just saying. I say I say um, not very much because there might be there might be some places like Enceladus and Titan where there might be some microbial life we probably don't really want to mess with because we want to study it. Okay. Um, so how can this benefit us today? I mean, like, this sounds cool. Like, if we look at some of the space shows with robots and spaceships, that sounds fancy. But does it really help us just in our lives? Yeah, it absolutely does. Because uh, one of the really important things that we get out of it is that we get new and better and stronger materials for everyday things. Because if it can withstand incredible stress and it's light and we can produce it relatively cheaply, we can add it to everything from cars to desks to you name it. Uh, the other thing it does is that a lot of the advancements in part that are that have been seen in particle colliders and in test fusion reactors actually get applied to medicine. So high energy medicine, how to more precisely aim uh, lasers that are used for treatments, how to more precisely aim rays that are used for uh, specifically cancer treatments. So it 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 really helps us understand how a lot of these things work at a very fundamental level. Uh, and, and by these things, I mean uh, nuclear reactions. And because we use nuclear reactions uh, for everything from medicine to diagnostics to imaging, uh, we can get much better, uh, much better x-rays, much better scans, much better treatments, uh, new treatment options out of it. And then when something breaks down, uh, the better imaging can improve uh, things like maintenance and infrastructure diagnostics. So there's, there's a lot of things that we take and use in just like very fundamental elements of how things work from consumer electronics to consumer goods. So does this propose that in today's world, there's a big power plant and then we have a bunch of copper wires that deliver this electricity to our houses and then through our houses. Does this go to the point where we would have this like much like a furnace in our house or would it be more like we have one in our stove? We have one in our fridge. We have one in our like that. Get what I'm saying? Uh, I don't think that that would be that level would be possible. I think it is. It, it's probably way too much energy to use 
in kind of just like on a scale of a house. This is something that would be kind of like more of like a, I could see it being shrunk down to like a neighborhood scale. Um, but I don't know if it can actually go much smaller than that. Uh, I think you probably, what we'd probably want to do is we'd probably want to have uh, much better batteries if we, if we want to go that route and you can have a battery that's charged by, you know, made out of some, like car, like carbon nanotubes or, or graphene or something of that nature. And you can charge it from this fusion reactor and it will hold its charge for months. And then you can just like power your refrigerator for months without any wires or, or something like that. I can, I can kind of see that happening in the far future. I don't think it will, mm-hmm. it will scale down that much because you still need you still need that that magnetic and inertial confinement, and that that's not going to shrink overnight. There's only so uh, there's only so small that we can make these these reactors. Cool. Wow, I, my brain hurts, but it sounds neat. And hey, uh, less pollution. I've always assumed that this kind of stuff meant that there was always some sort of toxic product out the backside of it. You know what I mean? So, I mean, it's there. There is, but compared to what we have now with every single form of energy generation and that does include coal and that does include biofuels like you you still get you still get emissions uh but you know you you're not it, at least these ones are not going to be harmful for you know centuries you don't have to go out and bury them in the middle of the right. desert and figure out how to create a sign that will still be legible in a thousand years saying don't open this unless you want literally all the cancer I have a feeling like this is what it's like hanging out with Elon Musk when he has new ideas. You know what I'm saying? Uh, like that's uh, what it kind of feels like. Maybe, but uh, it, you know, it, when it comes down to to Elon Musk, he has some very interesting ideas. But when it comes down to execution, uh, it's been kind of less than exciting. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be honest. I mean, space SpaceX is great, and I love everything that they're doing. But the things like the Boring Company and and some of his other offshoots. Uh, they, they've been a little bit more more missed and hit here in L.A., unfortunately. Thanks for being here, Fish. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 